Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. All right, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 17. If you don't have one, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Anybody need a Bible today? Oh, we need one up here. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, and I, and I can't uh, promise you that we will finish this chapter today, but I'm going to do my best. It, it was, uh, man, getting into this stuff is so exciting. You start looking at Jesus talking about his coming again. I can't wait for that day. And yet, for other people, it's, it's not such an exciting thing. In fact, it's one of those subjects that people don't really want to talk about. In fact, the majority of the world doesn't even consider that Jesus is coming back. So, uh, but for me, man, just, just digging into the scriptures this week and looking at uh, prophecy and, and, you know, how it relates to where we are in time and uh, the various different current events that are happening. I love what Pastor Chuck always said. He said, you just, you can read the newspaper with your Bible open and you can kind of just track what kind of the signs of the times and what's happening. And of course, we don't ever want to insert the, the current events into the Bible. That would be the wrong way to do it. But we definitely want to look for those things, you know, in the Bible that are being spoken of as we look into our society. And we think we see different characteristics, as we'll talk about here today, that are definitely in the society that we live in today. No question about it. I mean, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he talks about, or wrote to Timothy, actually, he says, you know, in the last days, in 2 Timothy 3, in these last in the last days, he's, he's referring to something future, but yet he, he was saying that the, the last days had begun. The last days began when Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. Now that was in terms of where we are prophetically in the time clock of God, that began the last days. And so if that was 2,000 years ago and that was the start of the last days, you can imagine where we are today. We're in the last of the last days. We're close to seeming, seeing Jesus come back, I believe. And so um, we're, we're in a two-part message. We began last week, Luke chapter 17 and verse 20, 20 through 25, and we looked at a couple different things. Jesus is answering a question from some Pharisees that asked him, hey, when is the kingdom coming? When will it be here? Jesus answered them, and we'll take a look at that here in a minute. And, and he goes on, and he turns to his disciples, and he, and he begins to talk to them about things they need to be aware of as it relates to the end times. And so let's not waste any more time on that, let's stand and we are going to read Luke chapter 17. We're going to look at beginning in verse 20 just so we can keep it in context. Get a good running flow here and we will go through 37. So here we go. Luke chapter 17 beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. For, there will, uh, for they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up in the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man." They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until uh, the, the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in, in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Who, who, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth that it provides for us and for the information that we have before us as it relates to your coming, to the coming kingdom, 
in the coming king. Lord, would you help us to uh, glean something from this passage today that might change our lives? Would you help us to see where we sit in terms of the prophetic time clock and, and what you're calling us to do as it relates to the coming kingdom, that we're called to go into the world and tell the world about a great Savior that came and yet a great judge is coming. And so, Lord, would you help us to, to preach the good news and also to remind people of the bad news that those who will forsake you, who will reject you, that there is a judge coming for them and there is wrath that will be poured out. And that's just the beginning of what will happen to those who reject Jesus. And so, Lord, let us be propagators of the gospel, the full thing, not watering down on whatsoever, but to tell people, yes, about the Savior that came, but to remind them of why he had to come. And so, Lord, help us today. Change us, as Dan was praying earlier. We don't want to leave the same people, Lord. Every one of us in this place needs to grow today. And we ask you to do that by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you were with us uh, last week, you might recall this definition of what the kingdom of God is. We have to start with what that is. And I think Ken R. Hughes gives a great definition of what the kingdom of God is. He, he, he defined it as not really simply a singular location, but he said that it's simply this, the people of God in the place of God under the rule of God. That's the kingdom of God. I like that. Again, we see the first picture of the kingdom of God in the, in the Garden of Eden where we, where we see Adam and Eve with God. They were the people of they were. It, they were the people of God in the place of God under the rule of God in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden. And of course, we know that that kingdom failed and the rebellion of our earthly parents, Adam and Eve, they revolted against uh, the king and his kingdom. And so the kingdom fell and, and that brought separation from God for all, not just Adam and Eve, but all of humanity. In fact, Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities have have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So through Adam and Eve, we inherited, all of us collectively, as it would relate to the, all of humanity, have inherited this terrible problem of sin. And that separated us from the kingdom of God. The only kind of people, listen, the only kind of people that are fit for the kingdom of God are righteous people. The only kind of people that God can be in the presence of. And so it's righteous people. And, and now we have a problem because unrighteousness has been brought into the world. And every person that will ever be born from, that, from Adam and Eve on will become unrighteous as a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden. We know this. What does the Bible say about the unrighteous? Paul writes very clearly for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen, do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, listen, will inherit the kingdom of God. None of them, no unrighteous person can inherit the kingdom of God. It's not possible. Sin separates you from God. Your iniquity has separated you. And yes, it happened as a, under the federal headship of Adam. We all were born into that, but we, we continued on in it, didn't we? We, we? we were born with a sin nature, and what the sin nature happens? We sin. That's what we do. And so we would, and, and that's why Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. You all fit in one of these categories, multiples of them probably. We all are people that are sinful people, unrighteous people. And the Bible says that the consequence of that is you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not inherit it. We're all under the curse, banished from the kingdom of God. All born that way. And yet I love the fact that Paul says, and, some were, and, and such were some of you. That's past tense. You were that person, but you're no longer that person. What's the differentiator there? It's Jesus. Jesus is the differentiator. Jesus Christ made the unrighteous become righteous. So when we talk about when we come to Christ, when we bow our knee to Christ, what happens is He takes off that robe of unrighteousness upon you and He 
puts his righteousness on you. And so when the father sees you, he sees his son. He sees righteousness. Now you're fit for the kingdom. But before that, you were not fit for the kingdom. We see that promise that God had given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You never want to forget that promise. That it was from the, through the seed of a woman that, that God would bring a Savior. All the way back when the fall happened. Listen, God wasn't letting himself cool off before he decided how he was going to deal with what happened. He immediately talked about a Savior because God wants you to inherit the kingdom of God. He loves you. He wants you to come into his presence. He wants you to be in his kingdom. And so he said right away, I'll make a way for you. But you have to abandon this life. You have to surrender to me. Everything that you have, you have to lay down and you have to come to me and say, I'm yours, whatever you want to do with me. God did that for us. And listen, as we just celebrated Thanksgiving, this is Thanksgiving Day weekend, I can't think of anything more thankful that I can be I can't think of anything more uh, to be thankful for than that. The fact that Jesus Christ came. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. God didn't have to do that, did He? God would be perfectly just in just saying, you know what, I'm abandoning this world because He's just and He's holy and all of that stuff. He, he, he would have been perfectly fine to do that. And yet, it was His love that compelled Him to say, wait, I, I love them. And I desire to make a way. And so God didn't... God didn't just say, oh, because I love you, I'm not going to follow my own rules. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm going to deny my character of holiness or righteousness or any of that. He said, no, I'll have to make a way. And he did make a way. He sent his own son. Listen, if you're not thankful this morning, if there's not anything that you could be thankful for, you can be thankful for that. That is enough to be, you, you should be thankful through all of eternity as a result of that one act that God has done for you. He doesn't have to do anything else. And that should be enough for us to just be so thankful. Lord, thank you. I'm so grateful, God, that you've done that for me. God sent his son that we could access the kingdom of God. How, do we, how does that happen? How does that great exchange happen? Jesus told Nicodemus, it's by being born again. In John chapter 3, verse 3, said Jesus answering him, Nicodemus, about the, the idea of how to inherit the kingdom of God. He said, truly, truly, I, tell, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again. You have to be born again. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to read your Bible. It's not enough to memorize Scripture. You have to be born again. Interesting enough, I w yesterday I was driving through a, over at a gas station and I, and I felt the Lord you know, speak to me about something. So I went and talked to this, this lady that was there. And I said, hey... Uh, as awkward as it is, because you don't know what to say, but the Holy Spirit's telling you to go. You go, I don't know why I'm doing this. I do know what I'm doing this, and I'm having this conversation with me, with her, but just about me. And she's like, okay. But I, I said, hey, listen, God loves you. Let me ask you a question. Where do you sit with the Lord today? You, you know, and immediately the answer, and you know what she's going to say. Well, I haven't gone to church in a while. It's not about going to church. That will not save you. I told her, listen, you realize that it's not about going to church, right? You realize that going to church is a result of a loving relationship that you have with the Savior of the church, the head of the church. We're his bride. That's why you go to church. You go to church because you love Jesus. You don't go to church because you think it'll save you because it won't. Religion will not save you. Only Jesus can save you. And it's amazing how easily our minds slip into that idea that we can be saved by doing something you cannot i don't care how long you've walked with the lord you slip into these tendencies of thinking that oh if i'll just do a little little of this more a little of that more god will love me more no he won't he loves you already as much as he's going to love you and that's with everything that he has he gave you his son you have to be born again to come into the kingdom of god it's the only way to come that's how we enter. That's how we're restored through Jesus. So we can, by faith, come, become the people of God and the place of God under the rule of God. That's the what of the kingdom. That's what the kingdom is. The question was, when will the kingdom come? We've well, got to get the what before you can get to the when. So Jesus, now he begins to just tell these guys when the win of the kingdom. In verses 21 through, or 20 through 21, 
He tells us the timing of the kingdom. And we looked at that last week. And he talks about that just as there was a physical and a spiritual death that happened in the Garden of Eden, there is a restoration process of a spiritual restoration and a physical restoration that will happen as it relates to his coming. The spiritual restoration happened in the first coming of Jesus when he came as a baby, when he died as a savior. That was the restoration of the spiritual relationship between you and God. He restored that because death had happened at the Garden of Eden, spiritual death. So Jesus restores spiritual life. Now, at the second coming of Christ, there is a physical restoration that will happen. And that when he comes, he's going to physically um, restore his kingdom on earth. Like he's going to rule and reign physically on earth with an iron scepter. He is going to rule and reign. So we know that as he's talking about this, he told these guys that the kingdom is here because I'm here. The king is here. So the kingdom comes with the king. And then secondly, that it's coming. So it's twofold. When is it coming? Well, it's here and it's coming. So it's both. And so we looked at, then we looked at uh, the, the timing of the kingdom. Then we looked at the longing of the coming of the kingdom as Jesus turned to his disciples there. And he told them, you're going to long to be with me one day. But you won't be able to. I'm going to be gone. One day I will depart from this earth. I will be crucified. And I will rise again from the dead. And I will ascend to heaven. You won't see me anymore. And he told them that many times. But you're going to long for me when I'm gone. But he also gave us the promise, didn't he? He said, oh, don't worry. I'll be with you until the end of the age. He's here with us spiritually, isn't he? He's here in spirit. He's not here physically. That's because the physical kingdom hasn't come. When the physical kingdom comes, the physical king will come and he will set up his kingdom. And so he told his disciples, look, you're going to long for me. You're going to look for me. And people are going to tell you, wait, he's over here. He's over there. Don't listen to any of that. Just, you just follow the teachings that I gave you. And he told them in verse 25, this is the pivotal moment in his message to his disciples. But first I must suffer many things. I got to suffer. If I'm going to restore the kingdom, I have to suffer. Somebody has to bleed because it's only through the blood that there can be forgiveness. And not only some, you know, just any old blood, but it's perfect blood. It's unblemished blood. It's, it's sinless blood. It was his blood. So he said, I have to suffer many things first. And I have to be rejected. Fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah 53, where he's despised and rejected. Where those, his own people did not know him. He came to them and they didn't know him. They should have known him. As I said last week, it wasn't an information problem. It was an interpretation problem. They should have known him. Yet they didn't. And so he did suffer, suffer greatly. Suffered more than you could ever suffer. Not only did he have the physical suffering, and many of us suffer physically big time. We watch some of our loved ones suffer physically big time. Jesus suffered physically big time. But not only that. Jesus suffered on the cross when his father turned his back from him. Jesus cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. What you deserve, He took. Knowing that many would reject Him and He still took the wrath. Because He loves people. He's a Savior. And that's what Saviors do. They save people. Even those who don't want to be saved, He said, I'll, I'll pay the price for you. Now the, hand, now the ball is in your court. You can do with it what you like. He was crucified. That was the sign that they had completely rejected him. When his own people, standing before the authority of the day, Rome, and they're crying out to them, crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate's like, I don't want to kill the guy. And yet to keep the peace. One life, as we heard just a couple weeks ago, as the high priest would say, his life is worth the life for, to save the many of us. Jesus' life. He didn't even know what he was saying. Jesus laid down his life for us. There'll be a longing for him. And we long for that day to be physically restored to Jesus, don't we? We long to be with Jesus. I was thinking about it uh, this last week as I was studying. Man, our, 
you know, Lord, I long to be with you. I can't wait to be with you, Lord. There's, there is this, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, and, and, and it's a great relationship, and I'm fulfilled and all of that, but I long to be with him. I long to be in his presence. I long to be shed of this body. Anybody with me on that? Like, I don't want to be in this body anymore. This body, I, you know, I, when I came to Christ, I'm like, okay, I'm done with that. Let's move forward. Let's go forward, Lord. Let's go do some things. Let's go build, you know, I'm going to follow you and, and uh, you know, I want to get rid of these, these things in my mind that aren't right or, the, you know, these actions that are not right, Lord. The things that I do that I don't want to do and the things that I want to do I'm not doing. I mean, what, Lord, I long to be with you because I'm still in this flesh. So he told his disciples, you will long for me. And yet he gave us the promise that he'd be with us. So he's with you. And so if you're feeling a little bit anxious about that today, like, Lord, where are you? He's with you. He's ministering through you and to you. So don't grow weary. Remember that. He's with you. As we move into verses 26 through 30, Jesus starts to talk about this unawareness of the coming kingdom. Like the world will have no clue about this coming kingdom and the king that will be coming. Look at verse 26 with me. He said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be within the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and be given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they, uh, uh, they were eating and drinking and buying, selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went, into, went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And Jesus says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. It's going to be like that. Like nobody has a clue what's going on. Nobody has any idea that there's impending judgment coming on, and yet there is messengers that have been sent that say impending judgment's coming, and yet nobody expects it. It's called not listening. It's called saying, I'm, I refuse to believe that. And there are so many people in our world today that refuse to believe that there is judgment coming, that there is a king coming with a sword. And his name is Jesus. I refuse to believe that because God is a God of love. God is, yes, a God of love. Of course, that's why he sent his son. He's also a righteous judge. And he will not deny himself. And so he is coming with a sword one day. And there is judgment coming. He, Jesus gives us two examples here of this impending judgment, like this society that was completely unaware of the judgment that was about to come upon them. He talks about the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Now, uh, you know, there is no mystery about what he means by that. Like, we don't have to dig into the Old Testament and go, well, what is he saying? What does that mean? I mean, let's dig into the, the in-between the verses, right? And make it say stuff. I mean, let's really figure out what it means. It, he tells us what it means. We don't have to really even look any further than what his words are to us. What he wanted us to know was in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, people were living life like normal. Like they, they yes, they, it was wicked. And yes, they were um, totally abandoned into sin and, and they had um, completely shocked, you know, anything related to God at all. But that's not what Jesus focuses on. What he focuses on is the idea of them just living life as normal. Not thinking about God at all. And of course, that's a result of the lifestyle, right? I mean, we're not thinking about God because we're not doing the things that God does. We're doing the things that fleshly people do, and so we think about the flesh. And so the flesh is horizontal, and so we think about this. That's what he's saying. He's saying these people were living normal lives. They were marrying and giving into marriage. They were having... You know, they were, they were getting engaged and they weren't thinking about, hey, the world's going to come to an end here in a moment, but you know what? Let's just continue on like normal. And yet, their worlds came to an end. There was wickedness. There was a, 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 a wrath that had come down. Jesus is saying these days, the days of Lot, the days of Noah, although they were separated by some 500 years, the days were identical. They were exactly the same. They were doing the exact same things. As the saying says, you know, history repeats itself. So too, we see the exact same things in our day. Where we see people just living their lives completely oblivious to God. Completely oblivious to His Word. Listen, they didn't have this 
But they had messengers that were sent. Noah, when, I mean, come on. The guy's building an ark. Can there be any clearer message? I mean, hello, you know, he's sitting there hammering, but he, he preached. He preached for 120 years as he was building the ark. What are you doing, Noah? Building an ark, man. There's a judgment coming. Rain is coming down, and they laughed at him. He was a laughing stock, just as you are when you tell people that Jesus is coming. Oh, yeah, sure he is. And they laugh at you. They laughed at Noah. Listen, uh, Lot preached to the, to the city of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Not really Lot, but the angels, right? I mean, think about this. Uh, these two angels show up in Sodom and Gomorrah as a result of, by the way, Abraham interceding on his behalf. But they're sent in to get Lot and his family. Lot goes to his, to his, own, uh, his own children and their husbands and says, hey, we got to go. Judgment's coming tomorrow. We got to leave. And they laughed at him. Thought he was joking. He was preaching to them. Then these two angels show up and, and, and Lot's like, man, I got to keep these guys hid from the, the men of this city because these guys are debaucherous. And so he keeps them in his house and you know, it's starting to become evening. And so these, these men of, the men of the city come to his door and they're pounding on his door. We want those men. We want to we have our way with those men if you know what I mean. We're going to ravage these men. The sickness of these guys. And yet... Lot would say, well, here, take my daughters. And the angels are like, dude, what are you doing? You're going to give your daughters up? He knew this stuff was happening, and so what happens? The angels blind them. That should have sent a message. Hello? I mean, you're blinded. You're groping at the door trying to get in for some dudes, and, you know, and you're like, whoa. So I, that should have probably sent a message to the heart that says, something's wrong with me. I should probably leave now. And yet it didn't. And the Lord's telling us that just like that, it'll be like that when he comes back. The same way. The, the society is going to be exactly the same. It's going to be identical. There's going to be an unawareness as it relates to this coming kingdom. When Jesus speaks about, he says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, was he talking about as it relates to his revealing? When you read Jesus and he says this word, when I'm revealed, what is he talking about? Well, it's pretty interesting that, uh, you know, the word reveal is the word akapoloto, which literally means, you can translate it, it's, it's the, the word revelation is derived from that. So when Jesus is talking about being revealed, he's talking about Revelation. He's pointing to Revelation because that is about what's going to happen. When Jesus is revealed, he's going to be revealed through the book of Revelation. As it says, he's going to be revealed. If you go to um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says the, 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 the revelation of Jesus Christ. Literally, the, it could be translated the revealing of Jesus Christ. That's what that book is doing. It's revealing Jesus Christ. It's not the revealing of the wrath of God. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ as the king, as the righteous king that will bring judgment upon the world as he'll come with the sword. So what he's talking about. So when he refers to the revealing of himself, he's, he's talking about, you know, he's pointing us to the book of Revelation and the other prophetic, um, you know, prophets that spoke about the tribulation and the second coming, such as, you know, it should point us to the 70th week of Daniel. It should point us to the time... Um, the, 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 the times of trouble or Jacob's trouble spoken of by Jeremiah should start pointing us to these different places in Scripture that talk about Jesus Christ being revealed in judgment because that's what it is. We know that the book of Revelation reveals the wrath of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 6, when the kings of the city, when the kings of the world and the citizens and all the rich people and all these people are looking at what's happening, it says that they run to the hills and they want the rocks to fall on them because they recognize that they're under the wrath of the Lamb. They recognize what's happening. And yet, before the tribulation happens, people are completely unaware. They don't have a clue. And yet, they, yet there's this impending judgment that's coming. And God has sent you and I to tell people about it. He sent us to preach the gospel. 
And in order for people to understand the gospel, they have to understand what they're being saved from. Right? So oftentimes, we want, we want to tell people, you know, Jesus came to you and everything, but there is some bad news. The bad news is that you're separated from God. The bad news is that if you don't accept Christ, there is a judgment that you're going to pay for. He paid it for you and He wants to take it away from you, but you have to surrender your life to Him. So there is some bad news. And to not preach the gospel fully is to not, be, um, is, is to not really be the full ambassador that you've been called to be. You know, God will give you the words to say. I'm not saying you have to have this form you know, of, of sharing the gospel. What I'm saying is, is don't shirk the bad news because that's part of the gospel. That makes the gospel the good news is the fact that there was some bad news and that bad news has been overtaken by Jesus Christ. So he's taken that from you. How else will they hear? Unless someone's sent, right? He sent you. He sent me into this world today, into a world that is completely unaware that there's judgment coming, completely and totally oblivious to the fact that there's a righteous king that's coming on a horse with a sword, and when that day comes, they will not want to live. They will not want to live. Jesus wants us to understand here in the book of Luke that just prior to the tribulation period, people will be unaware of the coming kingdom. They won't have an expectation of it. And yet, you and I as the church, we're called to live with expectancy. They'll be unexpectant about it, and yet we're called to be expectant. Like In other words, we're not to take on the world's characteristics and become unaware of Jesus coming back. And I'm afraid that that happens sometimes. I'm afraid that as in, in the church, you know, there's the, the, the stigma that's all people have been saying that for years. You know, people, you're not living with, that, with expectancy of Christ coming back. You're not even obeying what Jesus said. Jesus told us to be aware. He told us to be ready. In fact, he said in Matthew 24, 42, therefore stay awake, for do you not know on what day your Lord is coming? For you do not know what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus is saying, be ready. Have an expectancy of his coming. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 8, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for, to, to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as a labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So, let, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We must not become like the rest of the world. We must not become unaware of the coming of the Son of Man. We need to wake up. We need to, again, start reading our newspapers with our Bibles open or reading your news on the iPad probably is a better analogy these days. We need to start doing that because we're seeing stuff in our world being unveiled in the Scriptures. It's happening. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Is lawlessness not increasing? I mean, are, are men and women in blue? Is there any better picture of lawlessness increasing when you start to see people hunting cops? And you start to see policemen, you know, hunting people? It's both ways, I'm sure. That's a result of lawlessness. Lawlessness is increasing. Is the love of many not growing cold today? The love of the church is growing cold today, isn't it? I mean, brothers and sisters, well, 
will we'll have a little tip and they'll just part ways. They won't even deal with it. They won't even come in love and talk to each other, confront each other, be scriptural, be biblical about dealing with our differences. We just The love of many will go cold. We'll just walk away from it. And the world certainly is growing cold. Consider the words of Paul to his son in faith in 2 Timothy 3. 1 through 5, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Do you not see that through the election this year? Do you not see the division that's happened in our country where people are all about, no, I want what I want, and because you didn't want what I want, I don't like you anymore. Family members are dividing and, and not, not talking with each other, fighting about these things that have nothing really too much to do with us. Listen, this stuff is happening. And you can choose to be oblivious to it and act like it's not and be unaware or you can choose to allow that to fuel the boldness and the, of, of you going into the world and telling people that Jesus is coming back. You can make the choice. You can do what you like. But Jesus is telling us to be awake, to look around. Why do you think when Jesus showed up on the scene that the disciples found him? Because they were looking. They didn't know the day or the hour when the Messiah would show up, but they kind of had an idea. And they were looking. And so when Jesus shows up out of the scene, obviously they, he sent John the Baptist first. That was the first sign. People say, whoa, who's this dude? Guy looks like Elijah. Maybe he's the one that's been spoken of by Isaiah that's talked about the voice in the wilderness. Maybe he is. Jesus shows up right after him. And some people didn't miss it because they were awake. They were ready. I don't know why it surprises us when we see the moral degeneration of our society. Paul told Timothy that it was going to happen a long time ago. And it's happening today. People are marrying and giving into marriage. They're eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. And the church is sitting. Many in her as unaware of the kingdom, uh, as the coming kingdom as those in the world. We're called to live expectantly, church. Don't get sucked into complacency or don't get sucked into you know, a, a stupor. Wake up, look around. The world is unaware. They aren't looking for Jesus. Don't become like them. Listen, are you living with expectancy to see Jesus today? Or has that thought kind of escaped your mind and you're just saying, well, I don't know that I'll ever see him. Jesus said, wake up. Wake up. I, I echo the words of Paris Reedhead. He said this, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, he, he preached sometime in the, you know, probably in the 40s, 50s, 60s, somewhere around there. He died in the 90s. But he said this, he said, the church of Jesus Christ is largely sleeping like a great bedroom and you have all the Christians in bed and they're all asleep. And they're saying, please don't wake me up. I want to sleep on. And then he goes and quotes Isaiah 52.1 where it says, Awake, awake, put on your strength. Don't you dare fall asleep right now. This is a crucial moment as it relates to the, the history of prophecy in the Bible. Don't fall asleep, church. Wake up. Time is ticking. May your testimony and your message be louder than it ever has been before. Be closer to seeing Jesus today than you were yesterday. And so let that fuel you to go into the world and tell people about it. Jesus tells his disciples there will be people that are unaware of the coming kingdom. And that will have everything to do with the heart condition uh, uh, concerning the coming kingdom. Look at, our, look at verse 31 there. He goes on and he says, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Man, isn't this Thanksgiving Day weekend? 
man, that's kind of heavy stuff. Let's be thankful here, man. Uh, Jesus says, on that day, on what day? What day is he speaking about? On the day when the Son of Man will be revealed. Again, should point us to the book of Revelation. In fact, really what, particularly the way that Jesus uh, describes the rest of these verses here, and you have to understand, Luke, as he's talking to, to these guys in Luke, this isn't Matthew 24, he's not gotten to that yet, he will get to that. This isn't Luke 21, this is Luke 17. Jesus is sort of giving a large brush, brush stroke over the, the prophetic events that will happen because he doesn't want to overwhelm you. And, and he doesn't want to overwhelm his disciples. They don't even get that he's going to die. So they're not going to get all this stuff. And so he says, I want to give you guys a large brush stroke over this. And, and, and yet there's elements of this that, that he does go into detail about. And it, particularly what he says here should point you directly to Daniel chapter 9. Because this is really speaking, when Jesus talks about the one who's on, on the housetop and his goods in, in the house and not to come down, uh, to take them away, or if you're in the field, to not turn back. He's talking mid-tribulation. Here, he's talking, this is the point in which the, the Antichrist has revealed himself and the Jews flee. And he's, this, is, this is speaking to the Jews. He's telling them that they're going to, don't worry about grabbing your stuff. Right? You need to just flee. Now, that's not the context of what he's talking about here, but we're going to talk about that for a second. Daniel chapter 9. It's the prophetic, uh, it's called the 70th week prophecy of Daniel. Gabriel was talking to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And he gave him this incredible prophetic picture. But he told Daniel to seal it up. It wasn't for him. It was for somebody else. It was for us. Okay, so the 70 weeks of Daniel. What is that talking about? Well, there's, there's the, when he's talking about one week in the Old Testament, one week is equivalent to seven years. In the Old Testament, you can, you know, one week equals seven years, right? And, Dan, and he talks about 70 weeks. It's 490 years. Well, as Gabriel begins to break down how this is going to work out, he first starts to talk, talk about from the, from the going forth of this message of the re restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem until the coming of the prince, who is Jesus, the Messiah, will be 69 weeks. 69 seven-year periods. That's 483 years. Now, there's guys that have done the math on this, and, that, and they can show you that from the time that the message went forth, in Nehemiah chapter 2, when Artaxerxes said to Nehemiah and the people, go back and rebuild Jerusalem and go do all of that until the coming of the Messiah was, was 483 years. Okay, so, so but there was a seven-year period that hasn't been that hasn't happened yet. And so there's 69 of the 70-week prophecy of Daniel have happened. But there's still this one seven-week period. The seven-year period, I'm sorry. And that is the period in which Jesus is referring to as being revealed through. It's pointing us to the book of Revelation. That seven-year period when wrath will be poured out on the earth. When, when God will reveal to the world who His Son is, really. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 it says this. It's talking about there's two different periods during this seven-year period. It's split in half. There's three and a half years of peace. Then there's three and a half years of utter, complete and total destruction. He says this, Gabriel speaking to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and he, speaking about the Antichrist, who is the prince to come, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of that week, so three and a half years into that, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree ended, until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. So three and a half years, so for the first three and a half years of this seven-year tribulation period, which is talking about in the book of Revelation, right? For the first three and a half years, there's, there's the wrath of God is coming down on the earth, but there's peace as far as it relates to man as it relates to Israel, because this period, the seven-year period, is the period speaking, it's speaking about Israel. It's primarily focused on Israel. You can read Romans 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, and look at it there, but, but Israel will be restored, and it's during that time, okay? This is a lot of information at once, I know, but it's important, because here's what's going to happen for three and a half years. The Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with Israel. 
He's going to say, oh, you guys can have your sacrifices. You can do all these things. And they're going to rebuild their temple. They're going to have sacrifices. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to be at peace. That's what they want. We just give us the temple mound. Let us build our temple. Let us do our sacrifices and we're fine. They would love that. They're not expecting Jesus to come at this point. They just want their temple back. They want peace. So they'll get that for three and a half years. And it says after that, midway through at the three and a half year mark, that the Antichrist will break his covenant with them. Now, that points us to Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus was, saying, was talking. And he says this in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, we just talked about that, standing in the holy place, let, uh, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Didn't we just read that in Luke chapter 17? But then we read it in Daniel chapter 9, and now we're reading it in Matthew chapter 24. Because Jesus is saying that there will be a time period, halfway through the tribulation period, when the Jews, not us, those who are in Judea, when the Jews recognize that the Antichrist is, in fact, the Antichrist, when they don't believe that he's the Messiah anymore because he steps into the temple mount and he says, I'm God, worship me, and the whole world will begin to worship him except for the Jews. The, the veil will, will be pulled away from their eyes, they'll be able to see who he is, and they will flee to the mountains, not us. Israel is talking about Israel. The entire book of Revelation is focused on Israel. That's why, you know, when you get to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it doesn't mention the church anymore because the Revelation's split into three different sections, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but three different, three different things, the things that are, the things that, the things that were, the things that are, and then the things that are to come. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 says, Jesus calling John up, he says, come up here. It's a picture of the rapture. Come up here and, and let me tell you about the things that are to come. And then that's when, the, that's when he starts to talk about the tribulation. And so it's, it, God gives us all of this in, in, in the Word so that we can understand this stuff. The tribulation period is not for the church. The church won't be here. It's for Israel. So we can restore Israel. His eyes are on us today, the Gentiles. So he's been focused on us, and yet there'll be a time when he'll turn his eyes back to the Jews, and he'll focus on them, and their, 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 the hardness of their hearts will fall away, the scales from their eyes will fall away, and they'll recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. That's coming. And there'll be 144,000 Jews, not Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? It's Jews. 144,000 Jews that are going to go into the world and proclaim the gospel to those people who are living in that time. And many of them will give, the 144,000 will be sealed. They'll be protected by God. But many will give their lives up during that time. But we won't be here. We'll be with the Lord. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Not today, apparently. But Jesus said, Jesus said that there was this, it, it, let, me, let me finish with Matthew chapter 24. He goes on to say this. He said, let no, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house, verse 18, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Who is the elect? Not the church. This is not talking about the church. This is talking about Israel. Talking about the elect in Israel. He's talking about them. And halfway through, when this great tribulation comes forward, and then the elect, he will cut it short for the sake of them that are alive during that time. Jesus is telling us here that he's referring to this period of time, halfway through the tribulation period. Again, broad stroke. He's not making those kind of definitions when it comes to this. 
But, but we know from various different places in Scripture that that's the time point in which he's talking about. But his focus is not that in Luke chapter 17. His focus is on the heart condition of the people during that time. His focus is on the heart condition of people that would long to go downstairs and get their stuff rather than flee. That would be so focused on their possessions that they would forget about the one who gave them the possessions, the Lord. That their hearts would be so sown into the world that, they don't, that they're, they're so worried about that that they don't even care about Him coming. That's the, the point of what He's talking about here. He said, remember Lot's wife. Okay, it's the only time in Scripture that Jesus will tell you to remember somebody else's wife, right? He's not going to tell you to remember you know, Tim's wife tomorrow because she had nothing to do with the prophetic word, but when we're talking about Lot and his wife, he's saying, remember her. Well, what about her? What'd she do? Oh, you remember Lot's wife, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, when, when, when she was lagging along behind as they were coming out of Sodom, judgment coming, she looked back. She looked back. Now, when, when it says she looked back, she longed to be back. Like she, she left something in Sodom. The most important thing in Sodom, it was her heart. She left her heart in Sodom. She was following her husband, but she left her heart in Sodom. And so be careful that you're not following your husband, your wife, your children, whatever, because if you leave your heart in Sodom, uh, you will turn to a pillar of salt just like she did. She turned back to where her heart is, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Out of the heart spring forth the issues of life, right? It's, it's the heart. There's an issue of the heart here. She, her heart was left in Sodom. Now, her, she had kids in Sodom. Maybe that was where her heart was. Maybe she loved her sin in Sodom. Maybe she loved the shopping in Sodom. I don't know what she longed for in Sodom, but she longed for something. Jesus says, don't be like her. Don't be looking backwards. Don't be longing for Egypt. You came out of Egypt. Don't be longing for it. You know, you put your heart in, in, in my possession. You, 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 you make me the most important thing in your life because remember Jesus said, if you love anything more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. You love your wife more than you love Jesus. You love your husband more than you love Jesus. You're not worthy of him. You love your children more than you love Jesus. You're not worthy of him. He has to be the most worthy thing in your life. And for, for, for her, for Lot's wife, he wasn't. And what happens is she experiences judgment. For you see, you can't fake God out. You can't fake Him out. He will allow your heart condition to be known. And when He was bringing her out, He allowed her heart condition to be known. As she looked back, he, she turned into a pillar of salt. Now, if you go to Israel today, there's a place by the Dead Sea called uh, Mount Sodom. And it's a pillar of salt that's five miles long and seven miles, or five miles wide, seven miles long. And they say, see, that's Lot's wife. And you go, wow, she's a big lady. You know? <laughs> that's not Lot's wife. But listen, she's up there somewhere. She is up there somewhere. In fact, when we, when we went into Jordan last year, my family and I, we, we, we got to go to what they believed to be the, um, the, the uncoverings of Sodom. And they were just unearthing it, literally. It's not, it hadn't been, they hadn't discovered it. They just have done it in the last two or three years. Happens that the, the guy that we went with knows this stuff. And he doesn't just go with the charters, but he kind of charts his own territory. And so he took us there. Dude, five or six feet into the ground, it's just pitch black dirt. Stuff got torched. And you could see it. And you could imagine the day when judgment came down on Sodom. It was a terrible thing. And God was longing to save people from there. He would have saved them all if they would have turned to Him. But rather, they, they just went on with their lives, acting like nothing, ha nothing was happening. And Lot's wife, one of them, God says, you, you're not going to come into the promised land without your heart connected to me. And so you're going to look back and you're going to be judged. No one is going to get through. No one will get through. It's a sad, sad day for Lot and his wife. 
David Guzik said this about it. He said, the heart must not be on what is in the house, but what is in heaven. Jesus said, don't focus on what's in the house. Just flee. Don't care about your possessions more than you care about me. It's a picture of a religious proclamation. Lot's wife, a religious proclamation made without sincere heart. And listen, that won't save you. We said it before, religion doesn't save people. Jesus does. Lot's life, wife, like many millions of people in our culture who are drawing near with, to God with their lips but not with their hearts will be judged just like she was. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, let us remember Lot's wife and resolve to be real in our religion. Let us not profess to serve Christ for no higher motive than to please husbands or wives or masters or ministers. A mere lean-to religion like this will never save our souls. Let us serve Christ for his own sake. Let us never rest till we have the true grace of God in our hearts and have no desire to look back to the world. Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to open your word and to hear about your coming. Lord, what a sobering word that you left for us today about our hearts. Because you don't look at the outside, Lord. You don't look at all the things that we're doing with our hands, with our lips, with our ears, with our eyes. You see our heart. You see what we're doing with our heart, Lord. You see what it's focused on. You see its deeds. You see what it longs for. We're bare and naked before you, Lord. Our heart's completely exposed. We read earlier, your word tells us the unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Those of us that have our hearts sunk into unrighteousness, who want more than anything our sin over and above Jesus, will not inherit the kingdom of God. We thank you for the forgiveness through Christ and for that promise that was given to us in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, where Paul said, and such were some of you we're grateful this morning, God, that many of us in this room today can say, yes, we were that way, but we are no longer because of what Jesus has done for me. My heart belongs to him. I'm not looking back. Not going look at, to look at what Egypt has to offer me. It has nothing to offer me. There's only pain and shame back there. But Lord, I'm looking forward to you, to your coming kingdom. And I'm going to strive all my days to live like, like I'm in there now today because you're here. Spiritual restoration of your kingdom has happened. So Lord, let us be mindful this, this morning as we close, Lord, as we sing this last song. Let us be mindful of the condition of our heart. Let us be mindful, Lord, of of our actions and, and the way that we're living our life today. Are we, are we expecting of you coming, Lord? And if not, Lord, will you help us to lay down the things that we need to lay down before you? Maybe it's even our life. Maybe today we need to come to know you and we've been faking everybody else out. We're not faking you out. And you know. And so we ask you, Lord, as we move in this last five minutes, Lord, you would help us not to just check out and sing some words on a screen, but we would be intimate with you as you are with us right now. You would help us, God, to do business with you now. Lord, let us be thankful that we're not those people that will not inherit the kingdom of God if, if that be for us today. Lord, if we have grown weary, if we're not expectant, Lord, would you put a fire in our hearts? Lord, if we're, if we're completely and totally tripped up in sin, would you release us from that bondage this morning? So, Lord, as you move by your spirit in this place, 
in these last five minutes or so, Lord. The altar's open. God, we want to do our business before you. And let us not worry about what everybody else thinks, Lord. But let us just worry about what you think. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise your name, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.